Welcome to Ideology. This is week four of season four. Can't believe that we're that far into it already. And for those jumping in with us, this is the third part. We did kind of an introduction, but this is the third part of a series where we are taking themes that are from this podcast that if you've been with us for the last several years, um, a lot of material that you would be familiar with. But as our thought has been refined and sharpened and so much of that from you as listeners interacting, sending us questions, trying to take it from the top of a, a linear overview of what are the types of things, what are some of our key messages? And so one of them is understanding the reality that we live in a society that is um, secular and, and not just as a neutral belief, but as an active belief system, and then exploring what are the different ramifications for that? How do we make sense of that? And then how do we find a way forward as believers of what does it mean to live a rich and vibrant faith in the kingdom of God? So last week, we, we took some time to, um, maybe at, at an introductory level, contrast the Christian and the secular gospel message. So what is the problem and what is the salvation? And I'd encourage anyone at this point, if you have not listened to the last couple of weeks, it's probably worth pausing this episode and going back just because this will make more sense. But today, we, we want to explore and go a step further and take a lot of different areas and see where do these different gospel messages lead us. Some of them are, there's going to be some similarities. Some of them, there's going to be some radical difference where we might be able to name and understand the belief system that we live out of. Now, the reason that we started with week two, and we will go back a couple of weeks, um, where we looked at this idea of habitus and formation is recognizing that you might listen today, you might agree with us intellectually on one of these points, but if you're not part of a rich faith community and alive in the spirit of God and anchoring yourself in scripture, then that alone doesn't change anything. So we're not really, we're not making the argument that if we can logically understand faith and all the ramifications, then that's what we need for the kingdom of God. That's not, that's not the argument we're making. But what we would suggest is that the more you understand it and maybe can even name what are the different influences, what are the messages, why does this come across you and something doesn't feel what right, but you don't know quite how to understand it or explore it or even um, resist it at times, you know, how, how do we interact with this on a more nuanced level? So that's the goal today as we do this comparative framework. Um, I'm going to start this off by covering a few areas. And then Mick, you want to give us an idea of what are the different categories of things that we're going to compare and contrast today? Yeah. And even before I do that, um, I'd like to make a disclaimer as well that we had some good feedback even after the episode on Habitus that we have yet to really delve deeply into spiritual formation. And and I think the episode on Habitus was more to call attention to the fact that we are socially formed, that a lot of the formation that's happening at the level of ideas and culture happens at the subconscious. And I think we've we've just tried to raise uh, or you know, sound the alarm, so to speak, not in an alarmist way, but just to raise awareness of uh, being aware of what the, the water that we're swimming in and that we are being formed by our environment. And we will um, <clears throat> hopefully step back into several episodes on formation at a, at a more kind of granular level because it is, it's not simplistic. It's not simply be a member of a church and you're going to be formed into the image of Jesus. There's a holistic approach to formation uh, that we would like to, to uh, jump into. Uh, but yeah, I think as we compare and contrast or uh, continue to compare and contrast, <clears throat> pardon me, at a deeper level, secular and Christian beliefs, um, I'm, I'm looking at in front of me a T-chart that hopefully we'll be able to drop into the notes 
um, nine different, I believe it's nine different uh, philosophies or ologies. These aren't, this isn't exhaustive, but this is, is something of a roadmap. Uh, everything from, and I'll do the big ologies now, and then we'll break down what these mean uh, here in a moment if you're not familiar with these terms. But cosmology, or uh, the other side of that would be etiology. Uh, we'll look at ontology, we'll look at epistemology, teleology, anthropology, and as a subset of anthropology, our sexuality. We'll look at morality, uh, aesthetics, uh, or axiology, and eschatology. So a lot of big a lot of big words, but as we break them down, the concepts are going to be very familiar, <clears throat> even if you're not familiar with the specific terminology, the, the specific philosophy. And another big disclaimer, Drew and I, we are not philosophers, we are not sociologists, we're not anthropologists. So we are going to touch on these topics uh, from a uh, not quite an academic level, but not quite a street level either. Something in the middle as we worked in pastoral ministry and wrestled with these concepts. Uh, so if you're listening to this, which I doubt you are, and you are a classically trained philosopher, you're going to be uh, very disappointed by the superficiality of this episode. Uh, but I think these concepts will be helpful for the majority of us, uh, again, to just begin to, to become aware of what is influencing us and how that's affecting our spiritual formation and so on. I think it'd be good though, Drew, for you to start off um, looking at this from a theological level and and kind of tie in some of the concepts that we talked about last week in a, in a comparing and contrasting sort of way. Yeah, for those who, um, the, the ology that, you know, that um, suffix at the end of a word, you're like, what does that mean? It's from the Greek word logos. And it's the knowledge of, um, or you could incorporate that into the study of. And then, so what you're doing is you're taking Greek words. So theos is God. Logos is the knowledge of, so we're talking about the knowledge of God. As we go down this list, so I, it can be intimidated, I know, when I, whenever I hear a list like that, and each conversation has its own grammar and its own language. Um, but just to echo what you said, Mick, it's, these are concepts you'll be familiar with. So we'll start with theology. What is the knowledge of God in secularism versus Christianity? I would start with, in um, the Christian sense, what we're looking at is the transcendent and imminent God. And so what I mean by that, I'm, I'm going to stick to that order. God is beyond us, a truly transcendent God. There is nothing in me that can work my way up to that God. That God can speak me into existence with his breath. He sustains me. Like there's, there's, I, I, my brain can't compute it. If God does not enable me to know him, there is no way for me to know him. Yet we believe that our God is imminent. And I could add all kinds of things under this. We get into the triunity of God, We, you know, all the personhood of God, all things we've discussed, and we'll definitely bring back in. But God is three divine persons. We have um, this, this unified God who's entirely transcendent, who reveals himself into this world and is beyond me, above me, authority over me. Contrast that to the gospel of secularism, which is the deified and individual self. I think crucially, we're not saying that a deified individual self doesn't have religious belief but the religious belief is not something beyond them that they're accountable to, but it's instead, it's based in this framework, and you guys have all probably heard it, what works for you? So it's this idea that there is this re, re, you know, spirituality that I find helpful and fruitful for me in my self-actualization process. So I might believe in that. I might even creedally affirm another religion, but at the core, I am the center here not this transcendent God that's beyond me. <clears throat> that leads then to anthropology, because I am a deified individual self in the secular system. And, and let me just make a disclaimer. You're not saying the deified self in a transcendent way or in a divine way. We're, we're still talking at the level of kind of naturalism, but you're just, you're more so talking about who is the authority over my life, right? 
Yeah, I, I would say who who writes the meaning of my life, who dictates who I am, who, and you know, I mean, even today, I think that I found this to be, despite all of the naturalism in our culture, I, I'm seeing more godlike language. I think some people use it tongue in cheek, but there's a seriousness to it as well. A lot of idol, idolatry in history, nobody was claiming that they were transcendent either. You know, they're just kind of focusing on them. So I think that would be, to me, the nearest analog. It's not the same, but close would be our modern view of the self and an ancient view of an idol is probably not not that far apart of, of the control we have over nature, over our own destiny, over our own lives. Um, so in that sense, deify, but not in the mm-hmm. sense that we're claiming the same types of power that a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim would claim for God. So that then leads to our anthropology. In the secular system, it is predicated on this view that humanity is fundamentally good. Now, what we're not saying is that all people today are good, but at the core, if we could get back to the innocent state, whatever that is, that that we would be fundamentally good. There's nothing wrong with us. We are innocent. The Christian view is that we are created in God's image, so very high view of humanity, yet we're also fundamentally flawed by sin. And we really explored that last week. That then leads to our soteriology, which is the knowledge of salvation. Um, What does it mean to be saved? In the Christian view, um, we see that very clearly, and I would imagine most people are familiar with it, is that we find our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are joined with him in his new life, and we have that life eternally, and we have that life here in the present. We're recreated or remade in him. But there also is a soteriology in the secular belief system, I believe at least, as an outsider looking in, and that is that we find salvation through through our own self-discovery and freedom to live our, out our unique identity. So mm-hmm. if I had to summarize it, it'd be self-actualization <clears throat> is a form of salvation. I'm being mm-hmm. set free from barriers that hinder me from living out my true self. That then tees up, and really I'll turn it back to you at this point, Mick, that really tees up the morality, the teleology. It all kind of flows downstream mm-hmm. from that. So if this is the narrative, and, and that's something else that uh, we could explore at another time is everything we're saying is wrapped into a narrative and a story. So we're t- telling this story, two competing stories about who are we, where are we going, and you know, am I this good person that's been oppressed um, by all these false identities that's been put on me, and now I'm removing them so that I can live out this true identity, and then together we are remaking a society of individualized people that are self-actualizing in this this world of freedom, or is this story that we're people created in the image of God who through our own choice, are living in this place of sin, but we're dearly loved, um, and there's still this afterglow of God's image on us, so this incredible identity that we've received, but it's marred by our sin. That same God stepped into our world, died for us, made a new way for us to live human, and now we're being rejoined back into his life. It's a different narrative, and those narratives then set in motion well, what does it mean to be a good person? What what is our moral system? What's the end game? Where are we going with this? And you know, on down the line. So let me kick it back to you. You know, the rest of the ologies that we haven't gotten to yet. Um, what else do you see? Yeah, yeah. And, and let me just say too, um, I think part of why this is so important is, and I'm borrowing this from John Mark Comer. He talks about mental maps, and all of us have a map in our mind that's been laid down by the belief system that we hold. And so, if you think of like the the grid lines or the you know, the highways that you see on a map. Uh, and so if we need to get somewhere, we pull out our phone, we plug in the destination and we follow the little blue line. And we hope that the phone has the correct map uploaded. Otherwise, we're going to end up at the wrong place. And uh, just by way of illustration, uh, this happened to us several years ago. Steph and I, I was, I needed to buy a bike rack. 
looked up on Craigslist, found one down in uh, Belton, Texas, and, or sorry, in Colleen. And um, <clears throat> Apple Maps was still relatively new at the time. I plugged in the address and we just started following the blue line. I like efficiency. I like going the shortest route possible. And we started going down smaller and smaller country roads. And eventually the blue line cur- uh, took a left. And, and in real life, it was telling us to take a left down this dirt road that had like warning signs posted and a gate, but the gate was open. Steph, my wife, was uh, reluctant, but I, I said, this is it's where it's telling map. us to go. It's it the told map. you where you were <clears> So we to took go. a left and we began to drive and there were increasing signs. And eventually we passed a sign that said, warning, overhead artillery ahead, proceed at own risk. I'm not making this up. <laughs> And and I'm thinking this is awesome. Uh, Wait, did you keep going? We I kept going. My <laughs> wife. Uh, we had two young kids at the time. Uh, my wife was upset with me. And uh, like, how much more stimulus do you need to well, turn your car around? So then we turned a corner and we came across a tank and blackened earth. And I realized <laughs> in that moment somehow we were on the grounds of Fort Hood uh, in Central Texas and we're on the artillery firing range. And I, I then had a moment of panic, uh, hoping that it was not open season. And they thought we drove a little Scion, which is like a little shoebox. And if there was a car that could pass as like some kind of dummy, you know, like uh, automated vehicle. And uh, But at this point, according to the map, it looked like we were further in than – uh, then you know that we had fewer, that we had a shorter distance to go than we'd already traversed, and so I pressed on. You kept going. I kept going, and we got all the way to the front gates of Fort Hood, and then they essentially detained me for a little bit because we did not have the proper paperwork. Uh, they didn't believe me, and I was trying to point to the map that had led us. Well, they absolutely should we have detained you. Like this <laughs> actually comforts me to know that our military would. At the end of the day, I broke trust that. with my wife and and lost faith in Apple Maps. But uh, of course, but it was. I want to go back to how you didn't turn around. I know, I know. That, it's I, like yeah. what else would you need? Like an active explosion. I, like I needed people material. screaming and running. I like needed what? material for preaching. I think at the like end. Like at of the what day. point do you realize this was a bad road? Yeah, it was a bad idea. But it, it, it was a bad map, and it was it was uh, bad judgment on my part to not just. Concern, the map that I was following was leading me in the wrong direction. And oh, so there we go. All that to say, these maps uh, are a big deal, and we don't often pause to consider the map that we're following until we end up in a really bad place. And so as we talk about these beliefs, I, I don't want to just get lost at the level of kind of these big words and ologies. These have real-life implications, uh, which is why we're taking time to unpack this a little bit. So I love where you started talking about theology, talking about soteriology, to take a little bit of a different angle and looking at kind of classical philosophy, uh, we would start at cosmology. That's the study of origins. So where did all this come from, right? So the secular story, the secular narrative is that we're here as the product of time, chance, and chemistry, that we're just kind of a cosmic accident, right? And that uh, actually, to me, requires a tremendous amount of faith to think of all the complexity barriers that have been overcome. Not that it's completely impl- you know, implausible, but it's. Uh, I think it's a... Um, it would be a maybe a, a lazy, uh, intellectually lazy, just to assume that given enough time uh, and the right ingredients, that you know this this level of complexity could emerge. Uh, but that's the story, right? It began at the Big Bang. Before that, it's completely unknown. Maybe we're part of the multiverse, multiverse, and so on. Uh, but we are a a cosmic hiccup. We're we're here uh, by by purely blindly guided uh, processes. Uh, the Christian cosmology, by contrast, is that. 
we are here as the product of an intentional act of the will of an intelligent, creative, powerful being, uh, namely God, the uncaused cause. And of course, I know that raises all kinds of philosophical questions in and of itself. Uh, how could uh, something or someone be uncaused and have existed eternally? I'm not saying this, you know, not presenting this in an apologetic uh, saying that this is more plausible than the secular belief. But what I am saying is that everything else flows downstream from these cosmologies. Where you start in your belief of where we came from will determine just about everything else you believe uh, about life. The other side of cosmology is etiology, and that's borrowed from a medical term. That's the study of causation. So what caused us? Uh, why are we here? I think the next level down would be ontology, and we talk a lot about that, the study of reality. Like what is what is real at the most fundamental level? And again, we're just scratching the surface here. But if, if we're just here as the product of time, chance, and chemistry, uh, then the material world is all that exists. Um, and I'm, I'm, I know this is a massive oversimplification and overgeneralization, and we're not doing any of these justice. But um, at a high level, uh, only the physical realm exists. There is no metaphysical, nothing beyond the physical realm, which would be the claim of Christianity. Uh, and many other belief systems, but um, within the Christian belief map, if God is the uncaused cause, then his realm, which we can interact with meaningfully but can't see in the same way that we can interact with the physical world around us. So we believe not just in the physical, but in the metaphysical, and that has massive implications, right? So uh, as Christians, we should have an expectation to meaningfully interact with the metaphysical, with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see Jesus regularly interacting with demons and even angels. Um, and that seems like a stretch for many Christians because we, in the West, because we've been so discipled by a secular belief map that only believes in the physical uh, as far as our ontology. Uh, next level down, epistemology. We've also talked a lot about that, the study of knowledge or how do we know something? How do we know it to be true? So again, kind of following logically from, um, from secular cosmology through ontology, then the only way that we can know something, if the physical world is all that there is, would be through observation. We have to be able to empirically interact with it, measure it, test it, and so on. Uh, whereas the Christian epistemology would be, yes, observation. We can know God through the created order, Romans 1.20, but we also believe in revelation uh, because we believe in the metaphysical and you've talked a lot about this extensively. And it was the philosopher that talks about God has to reveal himself uh, to us. Um, I, there is so many. I mean, you get almost every single great Christian theologian. So, you know, that's every from, from Aquinas to Karl Barth. The, Barth you know, they all, yeah. Yeah. they have various views of what that is. But the, the commonality is we can't know if God doesn't reveal. Right. So we believe in revelation. And that's an important point. If you are, you know, talking with a secular person, and, and inevitably they're going to bring up uh, the, the seeming um, illogical nature of Christian belief because God can't be observed in the same way that you can observe something thing in a lab, um, and it just seems completely fabricated or, uh, or just too mystical, and that's where there is a faith element uh, based on not just observation, but revelation, God's self-revelation to us. There's a, you know, I think um, two things I've had people ask about is a lot of the story that we've told up to this point, you know, if you were trying to chart it, you would probably look at modernity or some form of foundationalism, you know, we're kind of starting with what we can prove and then we're building upon it. I've had people ask me about, so where does postmodern or postmodernity fit into this? And I'm going to use, I, I think I stole this from James K.A. Smith, or he might have gotten it from John Milbank. 
but saying essentially, I don't believe there is such a thing as postmodernity. And I would follow him with this. He would say, instead, I believe there's hypermodernity. And all the things you've just said. So if you're postmodernity, essentially what it's doing is saying all those things that we just talked about, ultimately, as a human being, nobody has a view from nowhere. What we mean by that is nobody can just evaluate the universe and the world and see it for what it really is. We can only see it from within a culture. And so the language we use, the cultural assumptions we have, there's some really crazy studies that demonstrate that scientific discovery comes after philosophy. So you think about that. It's like, it's not that we do science, we discover something in science and then it changes our philosophy, but it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. We start thinking differently and then that causes us to see things that we hadn't seen before. So, you know, that raises a question, well, what's really real then? If that's even how our best science operates, how can we know anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And and there's, you know, good arguments for why, at least mathematics or something that doesn't involve language. But even that, you get into it long enough and we could have some really good debates about it. But I think the point of what you're saying is I think if we can strip back all the layers I, I still don't think even the most ardent postmodern has escaped the different things you've said. And a lot of that comes down to um, the essence of whether it's naturalism or materialism, you know, this view of if this is all there is, and if there's no way for me to get outside of this, then therefore I can't ever have a view from nowhere to know what this is. There still is a modern argument at the core of that. It's just what we've realized is the ontology to use, you know, what is real is in conflict with the epistemology, which is how we know something. So what is, what I believe to be real is this is all there is. But then what that's led me to realize is all the ways I have of knowing something are limited by my vantage point as a finite human trapped in culture. Therefore, I can never actually know what is real. That's mm-hmm. where you get into relativism and postmodernity. So I, I don't really see it as a um, – at least as a significant new school of thought. I would just view it more as the end game of modernity. And, you know, of course, we could dialogue, argue about this if there's philosophers out there want to bat that idea around. Um, but I think that's that's where I would place postmodernity. And the point of me saying all that, if, if you're tracking, you know, with all these different stories that we're telling, even in postmodernity, I still think we're stuck within these core assumptions um, that you've just walked us through, Mick. And ultimately, whether I believe that is an act of faith or I believe that there is a transcendent God who reveals himself as an act of faith. But either way we go, it's an act of faith, and it's from that act of faith that we're then meaning-making in the world, that we are just developing the mental maps, the stories, all the different stuff starts with some assumption about what's real and what is. And there's really no way to use science or anything else. You can you know, determine maybe some degree of plausibility, but at the end of the day, you can't escape some type of assumption that is beyond science to anchor everything else that you believe. talking, I was reminded of a quote by Robert Jastrow, who I think was the uh, chief of the Goddard Institute at NASA for a stretch of time and was an atheist, I believe, to the day of his death. And he wrote towards the end of his life, he said, quote, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Uh, just, awesome. just that idea that a lot of these philosophical concepts precede even the, the scientific uh, inquiry. 
Um, yeah, but further down from there, as so we've talked about cosmology, ontology, epistemology, just to breeze through these, the rest of these, teleology, which you mentioned briefly, uh, drew the study of kind of purpose or uh, the reason for existence. Um, the, the secular teleology is very subjective. If we're here by the product of time, chance, and chemistry, then there is no ultimate meaning or ultimate purpose. And we have to then uh, create that. And that could happen at the level of culture. That could happen at the level of tribe. That could happen at the level of the individual, which is what we're seeing now. Um, I would argue, you know, like you've said, that uh, the teleology in the West right now is self-actualization. So it's the purpose of our existence. But ultimately, it's subjective. Uh, rather, the Christian teleology, I would argue, is is ultimately a, a relational telos, relationship or fellowship with God, with one another, and even our, our kind of relationship or stewardship of the created order for the glory of God. And we see that in, in the creational intent that God establishes in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, that, uh, I think we can derive our anthropology, which you've touched on from that, uh, Secular anthropology, uh, we are just another branch in the tree of life. Uh, we are an, uh, an animal uh, that's fundamentally no different than a sea star or a squid or a horse, uh, other than the fact that we have evolved at a cognitive level uh, to a more advanced degree. But there's nothing fundamentally um, exceptional about uh, being human. We are just animals. But because of that, there isn't a framework for sin. Uh, and we are good in the sense that uh, there's, there's nothing, um, again, divine or there's no objective truth outside of the self to label us as evil or sinful. So we're fundamentally good. Rather, the Christian anthropology is that we are image bearers of, of God, that we um, are uh, there's a divine imprint on us that is distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom uh, that that makes us exceptional in some sense, some sense, and yet we are bent. And uh, talked extensively about that in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a subset of that, and I think it's relevant for just the kind of cultural moment we're in, but our sexuality would be kind of a subcategory of our anthropology. And again, within the secular framework, uh, it's recreation, it's for self-fulfillment, self-actualization, and we've done extensive episodes on that. We don't have to um, bear that out right now. But within the Christian belief system, sexuality is a metaphor for something bigger than ourselves. It's for procreation. It's a means for joy when rightly stewarded according to the boundaries of God. But the, the point is, uh, it's within an objective framework and not just an objective teleology or ethic, uh, but it, it points to something bigger than ourselves outside of the self. And the last three, um, morality or ethics, you've spoken of uh, briefly in this episode, Drew. The secular morality is very subjective, right? It's, uh, it's going to vary from time to time, from culture to culture, most often kind of built around some sort of social contract, what makes for a thriving society. Um, but that's going to change depending upon the age that you live in. 1930s Germany versus 16th century China versus 21st century America, you're going to have a very different idea of what it means to live a good life or rather what it means to be good within that context. Whereas the Christian um, ethic is objective. It is in the person of Jesus and then in the boundaries that God has laid out in his word. And that doesn't mean it's not complex at times. It doesn't mean there's not some interpretive work that has to be done to tease that out. Uh, but it, it's, it starts from a fixed point rather than uh, from the, it's outside in rather than the inside out. Uh, the last two, um, axiology, which I know very little about, but that's the study of aesthetics or value, what is beautiful. 
Uh, within the secular um, axiology, I would say it's similar to ethics in that it's subjective. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Is that the, is that the, the maxim? Um, rather than the Christian um, axiology would, I would argue, be objective. God as the starting point. God as the source of all that is good. Or what's the, the passage in Philippians? That's right, true, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, to dwell on these things, and those emanate from the nature of God Himself. Not that the the thing that were that that is in question has to be overtly spiritual, but uh, is it an imitation of the nature of God? Does it reflect something of of His nature? And that would be the starting point for understanding value, beauty, uh, and these sorts of things. And then, lastly, uh, eschatology, the kind of the study of of the end, or um, yeah, what's at the end, and there could be you know, kind of like a cosmic eschatology or a more temporal eschatology. But uh, at the end of all things within the secular belief, if we're being honest, is just pure annihilation. There's nothing after death. Uh, and for those who think deeply about this, I think honest, there have been many honest atheists out there, and it's a very bleak contemplation, a very bleak meditation to to contemplate the annihilation of all things and the the ultimate temporality of all things, that there is no ultimate meaning, purpose, everything will burn in the end, or actually die a slow, cold death now is the belief as the universe expands uh, ad infinitum. Uh, rather, the Christian belief, uh, eschatological belief, is there is an eternity that transcends the temporality of this life, um, heaven, hell, new heavens, new earth, uh, resurrected bodies, and so on. So again, each of these is multiple seasons uh, to really thoroughly tease it out. But I think we, we just wanted to present this to say that there are incompatibilities between these two belief systems. Now, in reality, all of us live some blended version in the West uh, of these two belief systems, plus many others that we're not talking about. We're talking about these two because these are the, per- the predominant ones in America uh, today. But... Um, I think it it would be incumbent upon everybody, Christian or non-Christian, to evaluate the beliefs that form uh, our structure for understanding the world around us. Because, like I mentioned, with just uh, you know our ontological beliefs, that's going to impact my expectation on a daily basis of what is real. What should my expectation be of interacting with the supernatural, for instance? I think it was C.S. Lewis that uh, talked about. Um, following your beliefs to their logical end, that everybody should evaluate their beliefs and and then follow it out to its logical end. If I'm an atheist, to really evaluate the claims or the beliefs that underpin that position and then follow them out to their logical end. If I'm a Christian, then to live thoroughly Christian, to live an integrated life and follow that out to its logical end and try to extricate the two from one another so we're not living this syncretistic blended life uh, on both sides, whether Christian or atheist. Yeah, it's a, it's a super helpful to, you know, I, I look at it, going back to what I said earlier, what's the story that we tell or the narrative that we live within? So we place ourselves or interpret our world through this narrative understanding and these are waypoints in that story. You know, it's the plot, it's the setting, it's the conclusion. And, you know, so if you're more artistic in your thought process, you can look at it that way and understand these as elements in the story we tell. <clears throat> if I had to say the secular story in the way that I'm using that term today, I would say it orients around naturalism and individualism. And, you know, we could have a good debate about that. But those two are kind of the radiant core 
sometimes in Christianity, we talk about a gospel within a gospel. You know, you have the whole of scripture, divine revelation, but then typically there's a few orienting themes that are at the core of that. So when I, I don't read the Old Testament neutrally, I read it through the lens of the gospels. And I think you could say the same thing in the secular belief system. You know, I don't go through all of this neutrally. I go through it, um, you know, from this orientation. And so I think it's naturalism as far as what, maybe not even what is real, because I can't really know what is real, but what can be known is what I'm able to discern through empiricism or rationalism. And then individualism is really the orienting framework for my own life, understanding of humanity, you know, and all those, many of the ologies that you just said, Mick. Christian perspective, if you had to boil it down, I think it's this, it's God, you know, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so it's God, and then it's the gospel message of our salvation. You know, those are the, the orienting themes. And what I find to be really interesting is even if you think of language structure, who is the subject and who is the object of the mm-hmm. sentence? So mm-hmm. in the secular world, the subject is clearly us. The object is the rest of the world around us. And I think you could even look at where the world has gone wrong in a lot of ways. Is So if you think of a sentence, you have a subject, a verb, and an object. So it's I do something to the world or to other people, but I'm very clearly the subject of the sentence. If you look at the Christian framework, God is very clearly the subject. And God does the action verb. He acts. He creates the world. He redeems. He, you know, all these different things. And then we are the recipients of that action. Now, there's a really cool reciprocal thing that happens then where then we as co-creators or as those made in the image of God, he invites us into the action and into the story, but it orients fundamentally around him. And all these different things, you know, that's where we can start doing the T-charts. Are They're so helpful thought exercises because what it forces us to interact with is to say, which one? Which one is it? It, it can't be both. And I love what you said, Mick. All of us blend. And, and there's an element of that where I've heard people say sometimes, you know, the pure gospel or how do we kind of have this a-cultural Christian faith? Uh, I do think there's a pure gospel, but I don't think there's such a thing as an a-cultural Christian faith where mm-hmm. I can just separate out the faith from culture. Um, the reason I think that is is theologically. That's not how God chose to act in Scripture. All of our faith is wrapped into culture. And so it's not wrong. And that's that, I think, testifies to the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who um, he, he can act within all the, of our cultural assumptions and still make himself known. So it's really a cool feature of the Christian faith. So God is operating within culture. So culture itself is not the problem. But if we lose God as the subject, that's where we start to go off the rails in all kinds of different directions. And we're extracting God as a necessary part of the story. And mm-hmm. that's what I see with secularism. So the blend for me happens if somebody's telling a story where God is an appendage or he's an optional chapter or an, append, you know, an appendix at the end. That would be a good indication that we're living within the secular story. The Christian story, I fully support science and studying, the, you know, how does the universe operate on the level of the mechanics of, you know, the things that we can see and taste and touch. That's awesome, you know? So I think there's, there's a lot of room and a lot of overlap here for us to embrace the findings of science and philosophy, sociology, all that kind of stuff. But the story is going to read a lot differently if God is the subject of that story. And so then I'm factoring God in every facet of the story. So, you know, that, that's a good indication for me of, of which one am I living out of? What's the, what's the narrative view of the world that I have? And I think it's incumbent on all of us who seek to follow Christ if I want to live out of that Christian story, not to, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing it in a polemic way where I'm burning down all of the insights of culture. There's incredible beauty and value that have come from uh, many modern societies and so many things that I'm grateful for and I think are wonderful. But it's my claim would be if we remove God from the story, we're going to end up in a very bad place. And there's going to be a regression um, that we even see on a social level. 
Yeah, I think there are so many implications, so many characteristics that we could evaluate. You know, if 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 what we've just outlined in these belief maps, if that's the underlying operating system, I think the user interface where we operate on a day to day basis, whether it's our expectation to interact meaningfully with the supernatural, for for example, or a a communal orientation to the world or an individualistic orientation to the world, uh, and we could continue to enumerate these um, these kind of characteristics that flower out of the soil of these deeper beliefs. Uh, and it's really important uh, to, I think, to be um, a responsible thinker. And and you know, if I'm completely honest, if I was pressed, you know, in an apologetic uh, setting, I can't prove that either one of these sides of the T chart is true. Um, I I have faith uh, that I I continue to evaluate that the Christian narrative, the Christian understanding of the world is uh, is the truest representation, that it corresponds most closely with reality. Uh, but I can't prove that. And, uh, and I am always uh, kind of evolving in my understanding of, of truth and reality. But I think the point is being able to have the honest conversation and to look hard. One of my convictions is that if truth is truth, then, then it can stand on its own two feet. I don't have to uh, defend it or to get all up in arms if somebody... Um, if somebody challenges my, you know, my my viewpoints, uh, but I do want to take a, a long, hard, honest look because I think it's it's one of the most important um, journeys that anybody could take in their lifetime. And so I think maybe a good place to wrap up for today is just to encourage you. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, then I think that signals that this is a quest that you're on as well. And I think we would encourage for you to have an, uh, to be on an honest quest and to really think deeply about these claims. Uh, we're just presenting um, some, some thoughts uh, very imperfectly, but um, commend you in this journey as we, uh, as we embark on it together. So with that, Drew, I think we'll wrap up uh, episode four. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will continue to uh, dialogue about this phenomenon that we find ourselves in, in these kind of two competing uh, belief systems that we are trying to untangle uh, together as, as followers of Jesus, or just as people in pursuit of truth. How does this impact our spiritual formation? And we will continue to talk about this in the weeks to come. Thank you for tuning in. As always, feel free to reach out to us at IdeologyPC on Instagram and YouTube, ideologypc at gmail.com. We love hearing your feedback, and we will catch you next time on Ideology.